just really a pleasure and a blessing to be here with all of you this morning as we just worship together, as we, uh, as we look to something greater than ourselves this day. And so too, also, if everybody who's new here, just want to let you guys know we, we, are, we do this every week. Um, we're, we're here every Sunday. We'd love to have you back any given Sunday. Um, we're here, and, and we would love to uh, have you come and join us, uh, if you would. You know, you know, death is, 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 is kind of, is the, it's this equalizer in, in this world. It's the thing that, that really, um, it brings us into uh, a conscious contact and a reality of our own immortality in this world. And so, so death becomes this, this thing that, that each and every one of us are going to experience. I mean, the, the death rate right now in, in America is 100%. And, and so at some point, we're all going to experience this. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And, and this really is the whole message of, of Easter for us is the hope for something beyond here. And so before, we get, before I get going off on a message, I'm going to invite Lisa Coots up here who, who just wants to share. She's going to share a little bit of her testimony and a perspective change maybe that she's had um, within the last year couple years here, actually. So I'm going to turn it over to Lisa, and she's going to share with you now. Hello, church family, and hello to those of you who I hope will be my church family soon. My name is Lisa Coots, and I've been a part of the Rock Church family for almost 17 years since we moved here in 2006. Easter always brings up mixed feelings for me, knowing how Christ suffered and died for my sin, our sin, And then how he defeated death and rose again, and what that means to me and to you. The super exciting part for me this year is that he defeated death. Death does not have the last word. Life triumphs. One of my favorite songs this season has been Death Was Arrested. Have you guys heard that one on the radio? We're going to sing it later, so you'll get to hear it. It's an interesting title, and it brings up a very 21st century image for me of Jesus in a police uniform pulling death personified over to the side of the road and handcuffing him. He's in his dark hooded robe. Then Jesus says to death, you're under arrest. In this image, death is no longer able to do what he does and is taken to a cell to be left there forever impotent. The word arrested means to seize someone by legal authority and take into custody. In God's law, we deserve to be arrested and sentenced to hell because the wages of sin is death. So sin has to be paid for by the sinner. But Jesus, the Son of God, is the only one who could pay that wage for us. And he did. And 2,000 years ago, death was arrested and eternal life began. For anyone who will believe in him and take his sacrifice in place of their own. The rest of that verse says from Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sign me up. Amen. Death was arrested and my life began when I was five years old and prayed to receive this gift in all the wisdom and understanding that a five-year-old has. Several times between the age of 5 and 51, yes, 51, death has been arrested in close call car accidents and other near misses. I realized during those times that God has a purpose for me here on earth. 
Then in 2020, I got a devastating breast cancer diagnosis, but it was 98% curable after a double mastectomy until it was incurable and spread to my lungs in 2021, almost exactly two years ago today. When you hear that there is no cure, you hear your own death sentence. With the presence of God by my side and my family and my church family and all of you great people. With the presence of God by my side, I prepared to die. I said goodbye to all earthly things. I experienced each moment as if it was the last time. It's like your senior year in high school. You savor, you savor the last game you'll play in, your last prom, your last band concert, your last final exam, your last day in class as a high school student. I kind of did that with my earthly life. I savored what I thought might be the last hike with my family, the last kayak trip with my friends, last Christmas with my extended family, every holiday that could be my last. I lived with a unique tenderness of heart as I savored these lasts. I worked out a plan for my husband to live without my income. I nearly picked him a new wife. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'll let you guys know if I need help with that later, but right now we're good. <laughs> I even started grandma boxes, grandma boxes, um, with gifts for each of my kids to give to their kids. I don't even have any grandchildren, not even a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law yet, but I wanted my grandkids to know that I was thinking of them and loving them before they were even born. When you have time to prepare for death, it's interesting where your mind goes. After grieving numerous losses, there were more than just what I just said, numerous losses, I ended up with empty hands, which turned out to be wonderfully freeing. I realized I'd been living for myself and this world more than I had been living for my Lord and his kingdom. Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That means he'll take care of us. You know, church, I think we get that backwards. I think we seek the things to take care of us first, the things that we want first, and then we add in a little bit of the kingdom of God. Um, anyway, so that's, that's, that's what I think we're doing. Anyway, Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I didn't know how to do that until I emptied my hands and my heart of this world. It's a strange paradox, but through facing death, I was given new life. Death was arrested, and my life began. I was given a life filled with the Holy Spirit, free from the burdens of this world, because I was leaving them behind. Wow, what freedom and joy filled me, honestly. I was preparing for a trip of a lifetime and so eager to be taken home with Jesus. I had even grieved the hardest part, abandoning my family, and learned that I love Jesus even more than I love them. That may seem harsh, but it's the honest truth. Plus, I know that I'll get to live forever in heaven with them anyway because they have also accepted Jesus' saving grace. He offered. They accepted. It's that simple. I think God intended for us to love him more than we love our people here on earth. Jesus even said in Mark 10, 29 to 30, 
I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now a return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. He also said in Mark 12, 30, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. I could finally do that more than ever after I had let go of every idol I held in my hands from this world. Another layer of death had been arrested in my heart. So I was all ready to go, prepared for death and ready for heaven. And then right after Christmas, you guys know the punchline already, I think. <laughs> Um, right after Christmas this last year, my doctor called me and said that in my scan from the week before, they couldn't see any cancer in my body. What? Death was arrested again. Hallelujah. But, yeah, let's give the Lord a hand for that. Yeah, he's too good. He's too good. Too good to not believe. Um, but wait, <laughs> I was ready to go home to heaven. <laughs> My trip of a lifetime is postponed. The only thing I knew how to do now was live life preparing to die. But now I'm not dying. What do I do now? I admit I was disoriented. I had mixed feelings. I was happy and relieved, but also quite disappointed. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can see that in Philippians 1.21. You see, we were made for heaven. That's why we long for perfection, to be loved perfectly, to have all our needs met, to have no pain. Part of me was looking forward to that time coming sooner rather than later. So now that I know what Jesus means when he says in John 10.27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. He and I talk together regularly, so I talked to him. I said, I asked my shepherd, now what am I supposed to do? He answered as clear as day, I have taught you how to live. Now take out the dying part. Okay. I understood exactly what he meant in that moment. The disorientation was instantly gone. He was right. Through figuring out how to die, he had taught me how to live. Death was arrested and my life began again. And in another paradox, I was thankful for my cancer. This is my, testi this is my testimony, not my husband's. But I have to say that almost a year ago, last April, my husband Daryl was life-flighted to Mayo Clinic with bacterial meningitis, a complication from a brain surgery due to a tumor in his ear canal. He was minutes to an hour from death. On that life flight, God said to me, sing praises to me, him. Odd timing, but okay. Later, when I found out how close to death my husband really was on that flight, I praise God that he instructed me to do spiritual battle in that plane. Because where songs of praise exist, no evil can remain. Psalm 27, 6 says, Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. I don't know what was going on in the spirit world right then, but I obeyed my commander-in-chief. 
He is responsible for the battles I face. I'm just a soldier following a perfect leader. Again, death was arrested, and my husband is here with us today. The story doesn't always end that way here on earth. I'm still taking oral chemo daily. (laughs) But it does always end that way in heaven. My oldest sister, Rhonda, has already been there for 49 years. I'll get to see her soon, whenever soon is. Death is arrested, and life is forever. Do you see the layers of how death was arrested and life began? Jesus did it 2,000 years ago by his death and resurrection for all of us. It happened to me 46 years ago when I received his gift. It has continued to happen throughout my life. It happened again when I got my cancer diagnosis three years ago. And again when my lung scan showed no cancer spots in December. And when God taught me how to live. And again when my, husband's, when my husband was minutes from dying on that life flight a year ago. It will again, it will again, it will be arrested again when my body dies and Jesus shows the gatekeeper that there was a legal transaction, his blood shed for me, that bypasses eternity in hell for eternity in heaven. Death's final arrest will be when he comes for all of his believers and we will live forever with him. Live forever, not die forever. That's my choice. What's your Thank you, Lisa. What a great testimony, huh? All right. Well, so the resurrection, this resurrection that we're talking about, it's the fundamental foundational belief of Christianity. As a matter of fact, without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. It's everything uh, to us. You know, and most people, most people in this world, 70 to 80% 80% roughly, depending on what you look at, believe that there is something beyond this life. So if it's possible, if it's possible, and we, most of us would believe that there's something beyond there, let's just talk about this idea of resurrection here, can we? Well, what does it mean? Well, ultimately, we look at this and we look at the empty tomb. This idea, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but that Jesus defeated death, that that death could not hold him, and because of that, because he's defeated death, that when we are in Christ, that we too can have eternal life, that this is a promise for us. So Jesus, uh, Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What does that mean? Well, it, it means for one thing, obviously, that he is the one who is sovereign over death. Death is not sovereign over him. It has no power over him. And it also means that he has been declared righteous, that the work that he did on the cross was approved, that it's approved work. It means basically that the check cleared kind of a thing, that the check just cleared the bank, and we're evidenced by that through the resurrection. That he goes on to make a claim. He says this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says in uh, John 11, as he's talking to Martha prior to resurrecting her brother Lazarus, he says this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. See, Jesus is making a very bold claim there. He's not saying that I'm somebody who's going to tell you about resurrection or I'm going to give you a recipe for it. He's telling us that he is the very embodiment, the very power behind the whole concept and the idea of resurrection. 
The Bible teaches us that he's the creator of all things, that nothing was created apart from him. And because of that, he's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's powerful over all things, even death. Now, the one thing that we want, I'm not going to get too far into this, but is there any proof? Is there anything that we could kind of look at to verify this? And I would challenge you, if you're somebody here who doesn't believe or, or who hasn't really looked into it, to really to realize that, that there is a lot of proof that we could look at for the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's numerous people that have set out to disprove the resurrection who through their investigation have turned around and become believers because of it. You see, one thing about this is that everything about our faith is a historical claim. It's not a nebulous claim. Many belief systems are just kind of nebulously out there somewhere. Something happens somewhere, somehow, and you can't really get a hold of it or understand it. But, in re- but for Christianity, it's a historical claim. Jesus' life is a historical life. And there's really no reasonable scholars out there that dispute that. And the reason that they don't dispute it is because the New Testament is the most... Um, it has the most textual documentation to it than any ancient text, hands down, by far. As a matter of fact, there's nothing that can even compare to the textual documentation behind the, the New Testament. As a matter of fact, there are about 20,000 surviving copies of the originals. Many of these are written within 20 years of the events, and I personally believe that all of the Bible, maybe excluding the book of Revelation, is written prior to 70 AD. That would be within 40 years, roughly, of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, now you, you know, you're like, well, okay, uh, whatever, but... but you have to also, we have to also understand that there are 18 sources that are outside of the Bible that verify the life of Jesus. Twelve of those are by non-Christians. People like historians, ancient historians, Josephus, Tacitus, uh, Pliny the Younger, they, they document the reality of Jesus' life. So if we could establish reasonably that Jesus lived, then now the next question is, is, is what was that all about? Did he live? Who was he then? If he's lived, okay, and he lived this life and it's been documented, then, then who is he? <clears throat> Just for comparison, too, the Iliad by Homer has 643 copies to it that we have access to. And the nearest copy to the actual uh, original manuscript is 500 years after the original. As a matter of fact, out of Greek literature, only about 3 to 5% of it has actually survived up until today. And as far as that goes, about 10% of all ancient literature is all that we have of anything that survived through the Dark Ages. And so when you start to realize that the Bible has 20,000 copies of these things, it's actually quite amazing. That God has actually preserved His Word uh, where the rest of antiquity, where the rest of uh, ancient literature just wasn't preserved as a whole. So, we've got this problem then. He's lived, he's died. We've got historians that document that, that, that Pontius Pilate put him to death. Again, 
because we have a historical narrative, we have historical figures that we can go and we can look and we can verify and we can say, the people that the New Testament is talking about, did they actually live? Did they actually rule? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely. Beyond any doubt. And then we've got this empty tomb. And no matter what you do with it, there's an empty tomb. There really is. One of the interesting things about this is that this all took place in Jerusalem. We have this tomb where where basically uh, uh, we've got this guy, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy guy, asks for the body of Jesus. Him and Nicodemus, they come, they take it off, and they go and they put it in a tomb. The tomb is guarded by soldiers, and three days later, Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. Now, all of this happening, it wasn't like they took him off somewhere else. They did all of this basically happen right in the vicinity of Jerusalem with people that were very much known by the Pharisees and by the leaders. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a very well-known, wealthy guy. There's one of the theories is that they actually put him in one tomb and then later maybe went to another one and said, oh my gosh, it's empty, he's gone. But it's really not a reasonable thought in, in, in that sense. They, they certainly would have known. They would have gotten Joseph. They would have gotten Nicodemus, and they would have said, where did you put him? Where was your tomb? Because Joseph put him in his tomb. Jesus only borrowed a tomb because he didn't really need one because he was going to get resurrected three days later, okay? So it was just a borrowed deal anyway. One of the other thoughts is this, is that he just swooned, Right? That they say, well, look, we have Jesus. He's been flogged. He's, he's, had, uh, he, he's been crucified. He was in horrific shape. And maybe so much so that he just passed out. We thought he was dead. We put him in the tomb. And then he came back out. Well, that's an interesting theory in itself. But doesn't that say that, that like, we really thought this guy was dead? And he came back out of the tomb. The other one is maybe that the disciples stole his body. Valid could have happened, certainly. But saying that somebody stole the body is an admittance of what? That it wasn't there. That it was gone. And no one has ever produced the body of Jesus. And neither has anyone actually reasonably been able to refute the reality of the resurrection. We have creeds, ancient creeds. This one here in uh, 1 Corinthians for I delivered to you as of, the, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me." And this is the Apostle Paul saying this, and and, and this is an early creed, and this is a creed that was given to Paul. This creed goes back to within about five years of the crucifixion, and you see legend takes much longer to develop than that. This would have been a creed that, that, that is a statement of faith of the early church. And what is the statement of the faith of the early church was that Jesus was resurrected on the third day. Very early and taken back to a very close time with that. There were also eyewitnesses that were available that could have disputed this, and just nobody really has. Another interesting thing is that the disciples went on, and they gave their lives for the gospel. 
10 out of the 11 that were left, remember Judas betrayed Jesus and then takes his own life. There are 11 of the original uh, disciples left. John is the only one that goes to old age. And John is exiled on the island of Patmos for his faith and basically imprisoned for his life. But the other 10 of these guys take it to their grave. Now, reasonably, would you have 10 people that if they knew and they had been the ones that came up with the lie, do you really think 10 people would take it all the way to their death? With the opportunity to recant their testimony and save their lives. I don't think you could do it. I don't think you could get 10 people that would be willing to die for that. Now, people will certainly die for what they believe is the truth, but these guys would have been dying for a lie that they knew that they had come up with if they had stolen the body, and this was the deal. One thing you can't say is that nothing happened because something happened back then. As a matter of fact, it happened, and it's still happening. 2,000 years ago, something happened here on the earth that has drastically changed and is changing our world. It's the complete formation of Western society, totally and completely comes from Christian culture. So if this might be the truth, how do you have this thing? How do you have this gift of eternal life? Well, it's called the gospel, and the gospel is, called, is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus. First, to understand the good news, we've got to understand the bad news. The Bible starts from a very different worldview than we tend to. We tend to think of ourselves as being really great folks, right? Good people do good things. And, and, and that's true. We do good things, and we, there are so many good folks and good things that happen, but there's the flip side to us. And that flip side to us is the things that we do that we regret, the things that we wish we hadn't done. And, and not just that, the, the, the Bible, when it lists out sin, it's not just the things that we've done, it's the things that we ought to have done. It, it's the reality that, it, that when we should have been caring and seeing humanity flourish, we, we've really been feeding our own selfishness. That, that even a lot of the times, some of the good works that we've done, if we get real with it, we're actually based in our selfishness and our desire to look good in front of others. And so we start with that presence. We, really what the Bible talks about good people, it says that there really aren't any. That we might compare one another to each other and say, well, I'm good. I used to do that. I was like, I don't know where I'm at. Somewhere between Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. I don't know where I'm at, but I'm not that and I'm not that. And it's the whole reason for the cross. The whole reason for the cross is that we were stuck in a place that we, we could do nothing about. We couldn't undo what we had done. And there was sin, and that sin was a real issue in our relationship with a holy and perfect God. You see, God, if God is going to remain good, he must judge what's wrong. We know this in our society. When, we, when people have done horrible and heinous things, we, we, we recognize that there's a reality of the goodness and the rightness of judgment. That when it comes down, that it's right and it's good, and what's what needs to happen. And God is good enough. He's, he's too good to just sweep it under the, the, the carpet. He can't do that. But he made a way for us, and that way was through the cross. 
that when we trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that he died and he became the curse, and all sin of all the world was placed on him so that he might make available a means for relationship back to himself. It's kind of like he paid the whole debt, a debt that we couldn't pay. It's kind of like, it's like he wrote a check for the debt that you and I owe. And then he ripped that check out of the checkbook and he, he stands with a check for everybody here and he says, will you just take it? See, because you can only have this as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. You can't be good enough. But you can have it. You can have it as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this. It says, it says that you are saved by grace through faith. Grace is, is, means favor that you don't deserve. It's not because you deserve it. That's not the basis of this. It's not this basis of like, how well have you done? We're checking on you. No, it's, it's not that. It's not that we're going to see if you're good enough to make it into heaven. It's just we start all at this base where it's like, okay, you all have a debt to pay. And you'll either owe it yourself or I'll pay it. I've written the check out for you. And will you just take the check because it pays the debt. And when we take that, it says you're saved by grace, favor that you don't deserve, by faith. See, everyone lives in this world by faith. Even the atheist has a faith system. They believe something. They believe that there is no God, and the belief that they have dictates the way that they live their life and what they live their life for. We all live by faith. It's impossible to live without a belief system. We say by faith, uh, by grace, through faith, this not of your own, it is the gift of God and not by works, so that no one may boast. So we're freed even from this idea of trying to appease God, of trying to somehow be good enough to earn it. And it's about new life, and it's about resurrection power. It's about being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not this idea that like, oh, you become a Christian, and then now you have this whole list of rules to follow. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that the Spirit of God comes in, and it takes what was dead and broken and separated and away from God, and it brings new life to it. And when that happens, everything changes. Everything changes in your life when you, when you trust and believe on Jesus and where we were dead and separated. Now we're, begin, we're brought back into a communion with God and you begin to actually hear from God. The Bible starts to read differently. Your perspective in life begins to change. And it's not because we're just trying to be good people. It's because something has happened on the inside. There's been a transaction that I can't convince you of. I can't just tell you all about. You'd have to experience it for yourself. But for me, it radically changed my life 23 years ago. And what does it mean for us to have that, to have eternal life? Well, you see, all tyrants rule through the fear of death. They always have. All tyrants rule that that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, then you're going to die. But you see, Jesus dispels death because of the resurrection. It has no power, and we don't need to be afraid of death anymore. 
Philippians 1.21 is this interesting thing that Paul says, and now this is the third time it's come up over the weekend. Uh, Luke talked about it yesterday at our journey to the cross. Lisa mentioned this, and I'm going to mention it as well, Philippians 1.22. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you say that? How do you make a statement like that? To live is Christ and to die is gain? How do you say that when all of us are out here and we're trying to just keep living? Well, the only way to say it is is to understand why you're here and where you're going. To have a balanced perspective on the reality of life and, and, and what it is. To know why you're here, the purpose of why you're here, what your true identity is versus what the world is telling you it is. You see, there's a world out there, and it's really noisy, and it has a lot to say, and it begins to try to confer identity upon us, and it begins to tell you you only have value or worth if you look like this, or you're doing this, or your bank account is this big, or you drive this, or you live here, or whatever that looks like, and we begin to take upon ourselves identities that really will never satisfy us, that ultimately are just bound to to let us down. But when you understand why you're here, to live is Christ. To live is for me to make a difference in the world. It's for me to see humanity flourish. It's for me to, to, to walk in a manner that, that, that where, I, where I'm working for a new perspective and for new things. And it also means, the second part of that means to know where I'm going. What happens after this? You see, the four great questions of life is this. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Those are the great questions. And you see, the resurrection answers these questions. It answers it. It brings us into a place, a perspective of why are you here? What is your purpose? And then an understanding that the greatest gifts for you and I, God is going to hand to us when we leave this place. It means that the world is not all that there is. We don't have to strive to just get it all. We don't have to live in a way where we're trying to just glom on to everything that we can get and experience it all. But on the other hand, it means that the world and the things around us are incredibly important. Why does it mean that? Because God is going to heal it one day. He's going to redeem it. You see, the end game here is kind of interesting, and it's what we're going to talk about ultimately when we talk about heaven See, the concept and the idea of heaven means that you don't really have to fulfill your bucket list here. That actually there's going to be time for that. The reality is is that our future is both physical and spiritual. See, you were always created to be not just a spiritual being, but also a physical being. God first created a body and then it says he breathed a spirit, put a soul into it and it became a living being. It's that combination. The end of the Bible says ultimately that God is going to redeem this world. He's going to redeem the earth. And that we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. Not a non-earth, a new earth, a redeemed earth. An earth that has been purified, that evil has been taken out of it. That everything that we truly want and desire will be ours one day. The reason that we have such an affinity for the earth is because it's our home. And there's nothing like home. We love it. We love the mountains, you know. Everybody's like, my my church is the mountains. Okay, great, I get that. But you really got to understand the concept of church. Church is people, not places. And and church is, is relational. It's a family. 
and we get released. We actually get to have freedom out of this. You see, Christianity, Christians have done way too good of a job of telling everybody else what they ought to do and, 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 and judging the world around them. But you see, that's not the picture. The picture of Christianity is becoming a new creation. It's about new desires that, that, that are developed within you by God because you're relationally connected with him. It's not about going and doing a bunch of good things. It's not about going and following a bunch of rules. It's about having your life brought into alignment, into harmony with God, about walking once again with our creator in the sense it's the way we were always intended to walk, never apart from him. The final one is this, Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When I saw him, and this is John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Who will rescue you from death? Because death is the great equalizer. It will meet each and every one of us who will rescue you from that because you can't. Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. We give praise to you. We're grateful for Resurrection Sunday, for the reality that you, that you uh, paid the penalty for sin on the cross and that you were raised to new life that the check cleared, and, and so we also can have confidence and that we can know that we too can have eternal life through you and that we can let go of the things of this world. We cannot just have to hold on believing that this is all that there is, but that we can have a greater purpose, that we can even enjoy the things of the world because we're not putting an expectation on them that they will never be able to fulfill. So, Lord, I just pray for anybody here who's never made that transaction, who's never said yes to you, Jesus, and your offer of salvation, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would say yes this day to you, and that you would come in and that you would create something new in them, a new creation, not just an old creation that has to, to learn new ways, but to be completely and totally and beautifully brand new. Lord, we just thank you. I thank you that your plan has never just been life after death, but your plan is life after life after life after death. And that's very different from just life after death. So we give praise to you. We're grateful. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.